This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, welcome to Drinking with Authors, the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Lamb, and co-hosting with me today is... Mark Muncy from at Erie, Florida. Yes, and our guest today is the incomparable, that's the word I've decided to use, James Sutter. Woo! Thank you, thank you, I'll take it. Yes, I'm going to talk about what we're drinking. So I found, I'm going to hold this up, it's called Flying Embers. And it's pineapple chili, and it's hard kombucha. kombucha. Wow. Yeah. So I thought kombucha already had a degree of stuff to it, but apparently they've added alcohol to it. So go us. Go. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> yes. Like a boss. We'll see how I survive the first 30 minutes here. Mark, what are you drinking? Um, as always, I'm on my epilepsy meds, so I let them do the talking for me. But I am uh, enhancing them. With uh, Ichabod's Dame Pumpkin Spice from Coffee Shop of Horrors, uh, they've been I've been supporting them all through the pandemic. Uh, this little mom and pop place that makes these wonderful coffees, and uh, um, and they are uh, I am doing it iced tonight. Ice. Ooh, so, and a um, skeleton mug for those not watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My giant mug, and it is delicious. And, the uh, coffee shop of horrors, although does not actually do any sponsorship, is amazing. They're in Florida, and all of their coffees are horror movie themed. Yep. Nice, and yeah. they're just fantastic. So they are. Amazing. They're they're working on an eerie Florida flavor. So I do have a little bit of stake in this. So as long as so they survive, swamp water, yeah. coffee flavored swamp water. No, yeah, it's, it's going to be orange themed. I think so. Oh, I, that's better than swamp water. Yeah, the swamp water might work though. I don't know. Skunk ape flavor. They've already got that. <laughs> there so. you go. Well, I stopped drinking booze uh, about a decade ago. So I've just got a uh, lime LaCroix, but I added uh, just ginger extract and um, cranberry juice. So a nice sort of little mocktail. I was going to say, like, you're just like, Listen, I took this fancy thing and I made it more fancy and then even more fancy. I know, I know, right? The <laughs> I feel like LaCroix is a very, like, Seattle Pacific Northwest thing. Like, it's the sparkling water that everybody has somehow in the last few years, but... That's why. Coffee right, coffee, right. That's why everybody has it now. Okay, so for those out there that don't know you, can you talk a little bit about what you write? Yeah, so I, I'm a little bit of a daily taunt. I write all sorts of different things. Uh, most people know me from the tabletop role-playing game industry. So I'm the co-creator of the Pathfinder and the Starfinder role-playing games. And I worked at Paizo Publishing, who runs both those games, for uh, 13 years. And so I started on Dungeon Magazine, working for Dungeons & Dragons, and then we spun off and did the Pathfinder role-playing game and the Starfinder role-playing game. And I... Did a bunch of different jobs there, uh, game design, editing. Um, by the end, I was uh, the creative director on Starfinder in charge of leading the team and launching that game. And then I also was the executive editor of the Pathfinder Tales novel line because uh, we published a bunch of uh, Pathfinder fiction. 
Um, and so in that time, I wrote, you know, a bunch of game stuff. Uh, you know, I've probably worked on hundreds of different game books at this point. And uh, I also do fiction. I've got two different uh, fantasy novels, uh, Death's Heretic and The Redemption Engine, both set in the Pathfinder universe. I've also done comics. I've written video games. Uh, most recent, The most recent video game I did was actually a Starfinder. Uh, it was a... I want to say video game, but it's all voice. It's audio for uh, the Alexa team um, from Amazon. So it's actually, yeah, it's actually free, um, the first episode. So if you've got an Alexa, you can just say, you know, hey, Alexa, play Starfinder, which I'm sure just activated some people's. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they did. uh, It's a whole like. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a. (laughs) <laughs> I should really uh, be better about doing that. No, it's all good. That's good. Um, so, so uh, yeah, that was that's a fun thing where it's like halfway between a role playing game and like a choose your own adventure because it's a single player adventure. Um, but it's a full cast recording, and they've got some cool people involved. Like we got Nathan Fillion from Firefly and uh, Laura Bailey from Critical Role. Like so. The voice acting and production was just incredible on it. So that was the most recent uh, video game I worked on. Um, but then I also, you know, I write short stories. I write, uh, I can't remember if I said comics, but I do that too. And so I've kind of been all over the board. So you haven't done much then with what you were doing. No, I'm, I'm kind of new. I'm kind of new. new to this. But I, I did. Uh, <laughs> I, I should mention, so I was at Paizo uh, working primarily in the game industry for 13 years. And then three or four years ago, I stepped down to just write full time. So now I do, I still do, you know, I write some Pathfinder, I write some Dungeons and Dragons stuff, but I'm also doing more creator-owned fiction and whatnot now too. So for um, the gamer in me, it sounds like you had a dream job. I think Mark probably feels the same way. I mean, it is. And, you know, that's one of the funny things that we always talk about is, uh, you know, Every dream job, if you do it long enough, just becomes a job. Um, And it's still good. But, uh, you know, (laughs) people who are there long enough, you you find out that it's, you know, you go to an office like everybody else. Like we used to have, you know, people would come through and be like, can we get a tour of the office? And we're like, you can. But uh, you could sort of see a little bit of the light in their eyes die as they walk through and see like, this is just a bunch of people in cubicles. Like, and you know, there's there's cool stuff on the desks, but it's still just people at desks, right? You know, I think people hope it's Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and we're all playing games all day. And the truth is- You know, the that, movies are very deceptive in that. I think Grandma's Boy was very deceptive and what that actually looked like. Right. And I, I really would have insisted that everybody dress up every day in different character costumes. It doesn't matter which one, but you had to be in costume if you're going to be at work. Like, seriously, take it for real. You got elf ears over here. Make it happen. You know? No, nah, I think uh, I think the uh, the average gamer uh, or game designer is cosplaying like exhausted office drone. You know, like, I mean, that's that's not true. You know, nobody has to wear a tie. Like, everybody's, you know... There are plenty of nerd shirts uh, to be found, but everybody's just working really hard, you know, all day in front of their computer, like everybody else. Uh, Sounds but, like it hasn't changed in years. I I, I did uh, ghostwriting for Pace Setter back in the nice. day, and it was just 
uh, for Chill, the old role playing game, and uh, Time Master. And uh, they were, and it was, I was this kid walking into these offices expecting, you know, Mad Magazine craziness. And again, it was just old guys in cubicles. And then the art was coming in occasionally. Right. right. And, you know, I, I always sort of like lead with that preface of like, it's not what you think um, because people come in with such big expectations. But the flip side of that is it is amazing to be working on these books and to get to order art and have it come in and be like, oh my God, this, I just said, what if we did this? And now this artist painted the thing that was in my head, you know, like, and you get to interact with fans and, you know, going to conventions and uh, seeing people play your game, getting to hear from people. I mean, people are passionately invested in games. And so I used to say in sort of the beginning, um, in the early days of Pathfinder, when we hit our crunch time, you know, trying to ship stuff for Gen Con, we would have fans like sending pizzas to the office for the staff because they're like, well, we know you're working so hard and we're looking at each other and going, you know, firefighters don't get this sort of treatment. Like, you know, we're not, we <laughs> understand that like we sell them these books, right? It's not like we're doing it for free, but people, people just love the, the world and the game. And uh, it creates this really fun uh, community aspect of things. So did you start off before you got the jobs and everything you're discussing as a, as a gamer where you're like, I'm, I'm going to write this game. I'm a D&D or I'm going to write these games. You know, I kind of fell into it actually because I had certainly, I'd played a ton of Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games, but mainly D&D growing up. Um, and I had played, you know, from about fifth grade through, uh, I, I think I fell away from it in college just when I moved away from my, from my group. Um, mm -hmm. And then I had gotten into journalism in college and thought, okay, well, that's, this is clearly what I'm going to do because I was writing for the college newspaper and some other local papers. And it was all, uh, I was a big fan of gonzo journalism. You know, it was all sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, it was <laughs> what, how can I, you know, go have an adventure and then get the newspaper to pay me to write about it. Right. So, um, so that was fun. Uh, but then I got out of college and discovered that your average suburban newspaper doesn't want to pay you to go write about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so I was writing some much more timid articles. Uh, and then I was looking around for what, uh, what magazine work was there. And I found that not far from where I lived in Seattle was the company Paizo Publishing, which ran Dungeon and Dragon magazines and also Amazing Stories and uh, some other magazines. Um, and I went, well, that sounds amazing. And they were hiring for, the only job they were hiring for was an editor-in-chief. And so I emailed the, the CEO of the company at, and I'm, I'm 20 years old at this point. I've just graduated college uh, a little bit early. And so I can't even drink yet. And I email the, uh, the CEO and say, hey, I see you're hiring an editor-in-chief. I am totally unqualified, but uh, here's what I can do. You know, I've published a bunch of, you know, journalistic work. Do you have anything? And I, I had no idea how lucky I was when uh, Lisa Stevens, the CEO, said, yeah, come in for an interview. And so she wow. interviewed me and, you know, chatted and liked my moxie, I guess, and said, hey, we don't have any editorial positions, but let me see what I can find for you. And so my first job at Paizo was they were building a web store full of games. 
And so they were having me go Google and download images of the different products at a Nikola JPEG. That was my, <laughs> that was my big wow. entry into the game industry. And so I did that for a little while. I became an intern um, and I started, I really loved being on the internship. And then uh, they said, hey, you know, good news. We've got an opening in customer service. You can be our customer service person and, you know, answer all the phones and everything. And I said, well, that's nice, but I really, I'd rather be this editorial intern. You know, this has been really fun. And they said, well, guess what? We're removing the intern positions. So you're either promoted or you're fired. And I went, you know, aye, aye. Okay. So, um, so I did, yeah. So I did customer service and then uh, within, I was still doing a bunch of journalism on the side. So within about a year, maybe two of doing customer service, uh, I had gotten an, uh, an in to be a features editor at a local newspaper. And so I went back to Paizo and said, hey, I would much rather work here because this is clearly much cooler than you know, running a small time newspaper department, but I'm getting, you know, January 1st, I'm going to be an editor either here or somewhere else. And they said, okay, fine. So they brought me on to edit uh, dungeon magazine. And from there, everything just kept spiraling up. That's epic. That is an epic story. So when you went to college for journalism though, were you wanting to write before then? Or you're like, I'm going to be a reporter. I'm gonna be no, no, I'd I'd always wanted to write. I actually, the truth is, I never liked reporting. Um, you know, I uh, I loved writing, and I didn't care about reporting, and so that's why when I found Paizo, it seemed perfect because I was like, oh my god, this is a magazine job, but where I get to write for it, but I get to make everything up. Nobody cares about the facts. Nobody cares. <laughs> you know, I get to just write whatever I want. Yep. Yeah, so it was great for uh, those of us that had been around for forever. It was great seeing Dragon and Dungeon come back because they'd right. been for so long with the when you know when TSR died and Wizards <laughs> didn't want anything to do with it. So it's like, what? You know, what? Yeah, they were Paizo was doing great work. Um, and it was really exciting to be on the staff there. Uh, but you know, I'd always wanted to be an author, you know, since I was yeah, as as soon as I could read. I wanted to write novels. I wanted to write short stories, but it had never occurred to me that working in the game industry was a viable career path. You know, I'd always played games, but it had never sunk in that somebody somewhere had to be making those games. It just seemed too far, uh, a bridge too far, right? So I went into college for, uh, not even for journalism, just for English creative writing and sort of fell into journalism. I didn't think I was going to get into it because in both high school and uh, community college, I had tried to get onto the newspaper staff and they wouldn't take me. Um, and so I had kind of given up until I was uh, partway through college at the University of Washington. And my creative writing professor was like, you know, you should really give that one more try. Go talk to the people at the newspaper. Um, and they brought me on and had me start, you know, writing articles. And suddenly I was I was into it and it was, it was fun. Did you, so you went in for creative writing. Did you write it all um, when you were doing that? Like a lot of people, not that it's, you know, we actually, um, I have a publishing company. We published a book called Teenings, which is literally copies of people's journal pages and poems and all the, you know, stuff we write as teenagers. It's epically like our emotions in that moment. And you go back and read it and you're like, 
what in the fuck is this? <laughs> what did I write down? So we published that, you know. But um, did you? When did you actually start generating stories and stuff? Well, I had been doing that. Um, I had been doing that, you know, my whole my whole life. Like I remember there was a time uh, in sixth grade, I wrote a story uh, that I remember made my teacher and the entire class cry. And I went, OK, this is pr- this has got to be something. And then the next year, a different teacher got a hold of that story and read it to my class and made everybody cry. And I went, OK, this is this is what I want to do. Um, and, yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, but, um, then, uh, when I got into college, I knew I, I wanted to write fiction. Fiction was what I really cared about. And, uh, I did actually have a story that I wrote in college. Um, in my first creative writing class in college, uh, I got one of those stories published. Um, that was my first fiction publication. Um, you know, at just a, say what? What was the name of the story? It was called The Weight of Wings. Um, and it was all about a guy who uh, is, you know, an office drone who wakes up one day and discovers that he has wings. He just spontaneously grew wings. Um, but nobody else seems to be responding to it. Um, everybody's just kind of locked into their uh, their view of the world. And of course, it was very, it was one of those things that seems really profound when you're 19. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, like. Like we have to yeah. have a book. A very, you, very profound, very profound thing. Oh, nice. It, it's not for those not watching the thing, but it's literally we all have those dear diaries. Let me tell you the story. And it's, yeah. yeah, looking back, we're like, what the hell was that so important? But anyway. Yeah. So I, I was writing uh fiction, you know, through college and uh through getting starting at Paizo. Like I had started to get some short stories published. Um, I also in college, I had started with some friends, uh, an erotica magazine at the college um, because I wanted to see what editing was like. And so several of us, you know, got together um, and uh, yeah, we called it uh, Penitalia Collegiate Erotica at the University of Washington. And we put out all of I think we put out two issues. And I think that uh, after we graduated, they kept it going for like one more issue. Um but it was fun. And that was my first chance uh, to be on the editorial side of you know, taking stuff in from the slush pile, seeing how do you how do you format stuff? How do you you know design? I think I designed the covers, you know, um, and I feel like that actually for for all that it was, you know, it was a fairly small time thing, although being erotica and the first time something like that had happened uh, in recent memory at the college, it definitely made a splash like yeah. people people picked it up, you know, uh, we got a little bit of press, but I think that that experience was really good for me going into working in the magazine industry. Cause I at least had some small concept of what it takes to put something together. I always tell people, you know, I think one of the best things that a writer can do is work in editing and vice versa, because I think it really helps to understand the people who are on the other side of the desk from you. It's so interesting that you say that. We talk about editing a lot on the show because I think, especially for starting authors starting out, I think unless you really truly understand what an editor does, you can get, um, they can break your heart. All kinds of things can happen. <laughs> oh, they your, still break your heart. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is my little baby, and how dare you tell me it's ugly. Um, you know, but it's interesting to me that you say that because from 
talking about wanting to write and stuff going, I want to flip sides and get to the editorial thing. Um, my first question is, of course, did you write any of the erotica or did you only edit it? I... <laughs> A little bit of both. Um, I actually deeply regret now that I didn't write more for it, but I felt like uh, I had this sort of sense of honor, like, "Mm, I can't, if I write fiction for it, you know, and I'm helping to choose the fiction, like, well, that's not fair. Like, that doesn't count. Um, And so I wrote some poetry for it, uh, both issues, which... Mm, that was not what I was best at is still not what I'm best at. <laughs> so there was some, uh, there was some very angsty slam poetry in the first one. And there was some better, like uh, halfway between fiction and, you know, free verse in the second one, but I really should have just written Cause I have since written erotica. I've published uh, a couple of erotica stories, um, but yeah, I, I missed the boat on that one. Well, you know, it's interesting and then deciding to take on the editorial because like I in my function company, I work with editors and stuff, and I've realized I do not have that skill set. It is not one of my natural wonderful powers. Like I I can look at a cover and be like, this is a good cover, this is not a good cover. I can't make the cover, but I could be like, here's what's wrong with this cover. But when it comes to editing fiction which is interesting for me i i just not i don't have that like click i don't have that skill set like i can catch things but not be like this is how you make that particular thing correct yeah when you when you went into that um had you been edited before like besides in class have you actually been edited before you went i'm gonna edit other people's stuff no no not at all like my first excursion into I mean, I had edited in sort of uh, critiques and, you know, workshops within college where all the students are editing each other's stuff. But I I hadn't really had any formal editorial training. And really, like, we were making an erotica zine. Like, there was a lot that I was not learning about editing. Uh, You know, I got to, that was just, it was fun, right? I got to pick the stories, help lay stuff out. You know, I... I was actually on the cover of the second one because we needed a cover model. So, you know, it was uh, it was fast and loose. Um, but I learned basically everything I know about editing once I got in uh, at Paizo. Like I did my internship uh, with them for just a couple of months. Um, and they they were the ones who taught me, you know, what editor marks look like, you know, what, is, what does this little squiggly line mean? Um, you know, and starting to learn how to use a style guide and learning the Chicago manual and sort of just picking that up because I really was came in, coming into it as somebody who I didn't know editing, but I could write pretty well. And so a lot of the times my editorial marks were just, I don't know, I can't tell you why this is wrong, but it's wrong and this would be right. And it was only over years that I learned, oh, right, this is you know subject verb agreement or this is something else, but it was all playing by ear essentially. Um, and I learned, I learned a lot from my other editors. Um, and I like to think that they learned some things from me too, early on. Cause I feel like there were among editors. I feel you often find people, there are some people who know the rules and there are some people who can hear the music and the, the best editors are the ones who can do both and are somewhere in the middle where that you can say, you know, you, you need to know what's, uh, what's correct and what's not, but you also got to know when it's okay to break the rules or when something will sound much better 
if you just let that thing slide. Um, and I'm definitely on that side, which, you know, can be a problem for some people, but, uh, but I definitely learned, you know, over time how to do things the right way, but I'm still terrible at, you know, uh, remembering exactly what it's called. You know, when somebody says, you know, what's the subjunctive, you know, I go a little bit blank, that kind of thing. I yeah. just did too, so that yep. helps at all because I don't know <laughs> what that is. But um, it's interesting though that you edited erotica first because as an erotica writer, mm. erotica, uh, that's one of the two genres I write, but erotica can be very interesting because it has a... Um, not that other fiction doesn't have this, but it has a realism, a repetition problem, because mm. you can only say the word cock so many times in a story, for instance, <laughs> before you may need to change the name of the genitalia. And I think that, it, at least that I've seen, is like versus romance, for instance, erotica is a lot harder to communicate your thoughts because you also have to make sure you have the right amount of body parts for however many people or things are in the room. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that you started there because I feel like that's one of the more complex genres to edit. Oh yeah. And I wrote some terrible erotica in college, but I think it was terrible for, for reasons that maybe other people's erotica wasn't terrible. Like I think it was the terrible parts were not the sex. The terrible parts were all the like literary things I was trying to do with it, where you know, I was trying to sell these stories where it was like, what if it's erotica, but it makes people really sad? Like maybe that'll work. No, that doesn't work. Nobody wants that. <laughs> you know? um, and just like the, uh, I, I enjoy, I think there's a lot of humor often in things that I write. Um, and there's a lot of humor in sex and like that can go together well, but you have to, and I, I think the best, uh, you know, sexy writing does embrace that. But you got to know what you're doing. And man, at 18, I did not know what I was doing. So some of those stories are thankfully buried forever. Yeah, I'm going to take points because what I read is humorous erotica. My, my Great. It's called My Home on Whore Island. So <laughs> that's I love it. I know. I agree, though. And I think actually getting humor to communicate in writing is so different than any other artistic thing, whether you're like we're doing a podcast. People will be laughing at some of the stuff we say. Um, doing any sort of plays, radio, anything. Uh, Mark does TV guest spot. Mark's not always TV and guest spots. It's ridiculous. But his, <laughs> he's funny and it's charismatic, but it's very different when you do that in literature and you can actually make somebody laugh. You know, yeah. I laugh out loud, which actually leads me to a fun question. What is the first um, piece of literature that actually makes you laugh out loud? Oh, God. Uh, I started reading pretty young, and uh, so I couldn't tell you. Like, probably uh, probably Calvin and Hobbes or something like that. I was really into cartoons and comics growing up. I mean, I still love them. Um, so that probably got to me first. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think, like, my... In terms of favorite books from childhood, I bet that um, Patricia Reed's Enchanted Forest Chronicles are always ones that I come back to uh, just because they're so delightful. Um, I can't remember if they made me laugh out loud, uh, but they just, you just sink into them. They're, they're just this warm, 
friendly, fun, while still being really interesting. I feel like I still haven't seen any YA fantasy that can touch them. Yeah, they hold up well. They do hold up well. Huh? What about you? What makes you laugh? I'm I'm literally oh, uh, rapid fire question. Probably Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mm. think the first thing that just there was a moment I think when I was reading that that where he explains that the entire population of the universe was zero, and it made sense, and that just blew my mind. And I just remember I couldn't stop laughing for like a long period of time. Probably something before that, but that was definitely the first one that you know, holds a place in my heart. So. I, I just remembered what mine actually were oh, and it was, it was two different authors and it was Dave Barry uh-huh. um, who I had his collections of columns and they would just crack me up. And I don't like, it was one of those things where he would just build on you like a stand up comic routine until at some point he would hit you with something that isn't funny on its own, but in context makes you just, you know, I remember a friend and I were reading it it like secretly in social studies. And I remember we ran across this line. The punchline to it was condition potato. That was it. I don't remember what the lead up was, but I remember that condition potato set us off so bad that we got in trouble and had the book taken away, but it was Dave Barry. And it was uh, Patrick F. McManus who wrote humorous outdoor uh, stuff. Um, And he had again, like these, you know, funny outdoor stories um, they were a little more story and a little less uh, article. Um, so to kind of contrast him with Dave Barry, but he had a really great sort of like wry sense of humor that uh, also um, really cemented as a kid who didn't spend a lot of time in the outdoors. They really gave me a vicarious love for things like hiking and camping, which I didn't do until I was much older. No, that makes sense. Okay, so mine are and share. Douglas Adams, always. I love Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, so long things for all the things. But Pierce Anthony Lamp series, I remember the right. catastrophe. And it was a cat ass trophy. Like, beware of the catastrophe. His, the puns were amazing. And as soon as COVID's actually over, he's going to be on the show. But the other one that I absolutely really? loved absolutely love down for that road trip when we do that bimbos of the death club by sharon (laughs) i've never heard of that before oh my gosh she writes about so the entire premise of this book is there's a science writer who wrote a theory about sunspots and computers this thing was published in 80 million years ago so uh i don't even know when this yes (laughs) wow that's the original tsr print yes PSR mystery. Yeah. Wow. And she's a mystery writer, but she wrote two of these books. And the premise is there's this science um, professor who writes a theory of sunspots in computers. And the publisher says, well, we need to jazz it up into a fiction novel and puts a fur-clad bikini girl on the cover of it. And then says he needs to go to these nerd conventions and sell the book. So his girlfriend's totally into it, but they go to a nerd convention. And I have to tell you this, I hope to meet her one day, but Sharon McCrum has been to nerd conventions and not the kind that are popular now. Everybody's like, I'm going to Comic-Con. I'm talking about the kind that were in the hotel basement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's hysterical, but she nails every character that is in a convention, like perfectly. 
And I remember getting this book for the first time. And you can see, like, I've read it a lot. Right. Um, I remember getting this book for the first time and actually reading and laughing when I say out loud, like, not just, like, I find this funny, but, like, tears rolling down my face. Because I was like, she understands my people. <laughs> <laughs> all right, James, I got a question for you. You've written for yeah. Pathfinder, Starfinder, all these, uh, and then you've had some other genres you've worked in. What would be your, you know, money, no object. What would be your dream mythos to write in? Uh, an existing property that somebody else yeah, has? An existing, yes. Besides your own. You know, I'm trying to think. I never have a good answer to this question um, because I feel like, Oftentimes the thing that I enjoy most in a setting is getting in on the ground floor, getting in when something's early where I can develop like world building is sort of one of my things, right? Like with uh, Pathfinder and Starfinder, you know, I'm much less of a rules guy than a world lore guy. And so I love crafting cultures and deities and all these different things. Um, and so for me, kind of the longer the, property's been around the less room there is to play and and i'm also when you get right down to it i'm just a real bad fanboy there's like there's a ton of things that i love but very few things that i deep dive into the way that a lot of people do um and so i never really know would it be fun to write for star wars or uh alien or you know any of those or stranger things or something like that like yeah that would be great but I, I rarely put myself forward, you know, to the extent that I have any chance uh, at writing those things, but, you know, I rarely actively pursue those opportunities because I know that, you know, there's a lot of people who know that material way better than I do. And I might really have fun with it. I have a lot of friends who've written Star Wars um, or, you know, other properties like that. But for me, the absolute best tie-in uh, work that I've gotten to do was my two novels for Pathfinder because it was it was tie-in work in a world I helped develop. Right. Um, so actually, I guess um, you know my real answer there then is Starfinder. I would love to write a Starfinder comic book. I think that that would be probably my favorite thing that I could do right now. Especially since you had a hand in shaping it. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's totally even more than I love it. Like Pathfinder, I was definitely on the team, but Starfinder, you know, Starfinder being the creative director and a lot of the setting actually came out of a book that I'd written before called uh, Distant Worlds. I'd gotten to back when we were just doing Pathfinder before Starfinder came along, uh, my colleagues allowed me to write a setting book that was detailing all the other planets in Star in uh, the Pathfinder solar system. And so I got to kind of go off on my own and create all these other planets. And then, you know, people, people liked what I'd done. And so, you know, it got adopted. And then when it was time to go for Starfinder, that became the core setting. So all of the, you know, the core setting in Starfinder is built on sort of those foundations that I got to lay. And so I feel, you know, and to be clear, a bunch of people worked on Starfinder. It is not like my baby, but I feel a deep emotional connection to it. Um, so, yeah. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? 
Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. games when you were the creator of them honestly um and this is going to sound rough to a lot of people uh not very much you know we we all made it a point of you know you you need to be actively playing your game if you're not playing at all you really miss out on you know all the problems that can arise in a rule set all the opportunities um so it's important to be playing it but for many years there, it was like, if I got one game every week or two, that was, that was good. Um, and, you know, and sometimes, sometimes there would be more, but I almost never had more than one game a week um, for all those years that I was working there. And there would be long dry spells. And it was because working in the gaming industry, there's, you're always understaffed. There's not a lot of money in tabletop role-playing games. And so everybody's just, working their butts off and so everybody would you know if you were at the office you were there because you were getting stuff done and sometimes you would come home and like the last thing you want to do sometimes is go play with that book that has just you know stolen your weekends (laughs) um so it's it kind of requires a little bit of cognitive dissonance to be able to shut off your work mind and just enjoy the uh the games themselves i will say you know, we still had some fun, epic campaigns while I was there, but since retiring from Paizo and going full-time freelance, uh, I play I play a lot more now than I did while I was working there, just because I've got the time and it feels purely like recreation now. That makes sense. I do have one question, and then I'm going back to writing. But um, as an avid player of so many role-playing games in this world, um, I played a cat burglar and he made me Ninja Turtles the role playing game. Like, I nice. can go down. I hate turps. Not even going to discuss it. The combat system is terrible. But when you're playing the game, did you ever run into a situation when you're playing that you find a rule and you're like, this sucks? All this the time. Sucks. Yeah, like a poorly written rule. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it happens. Like my, I'm running a Starfinder campaign right now and my group loves to make fun of me when I come across something and I go, what, what, that rule. And they're like, it's your game, man. It's like, I know, but like, that's why I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, house rule things, you know, we'll, we give you the book. It is the best that we could do. I think it's pretty good, but you're always going to find stuff that would work better a different way for your particular group and game. And GMs shouldn't be afraid to, you know, take it and do what they want with it. Like once we give you the book, it's yours. Feel free to remix it. No, that makes sense. Okay, we're going back to writing novels. Um, you wrote two novels in the Pathfinder and short stories. What about writing something not in those universes? Oh yeah, I do that too. I've got, um, I'm actually right now uh, getting ready to shop a young adult contemporary romance that I wrote where uh, which is the first time I've done that. But 
Yeah, I also write, uh, you know, creator-owned stuff, but it it has not yet sold as well as the uh, as the game stuff. Um, there's a little bit of there is an element here in which I am trying to sort of like switch careers. Like I still really love working on game stuff and I want to do it forever, but I'm very much trying to launch the novelist side of my career as well. And those, as much as, you know, a career in the gaming industry and certainly being an editor who is, you know, I edited 40 something novels for Pathfinder, you know, and I had a lot of connections. I worked with, um, you know, Tor McMillan on those novels. So I've, you know, I've been in the industry, but, you know, I'm, I've been a games guy and now I'm trying to be solely a fiction guy. And those are two different horses that uh, (laughs) it can be, it can be difficult. When I first, I will be honest and admit that when I first retired from Paizo, I thought that it would be a pretty easy jump to just publishing creator-owned novels. Um, And it's been more difficult than I thought. Um, You know, I've gotten to do lots of fun stuff and I'm still positive. I, not positive. I have confidence that uh, like it is building up, but I kind of had to start back at uh, square one, you know, Um, the, the games, and this that's actually one of the things about tie-in in general that I think people need to realize is they're really fun. Uh, properties can be really fun to work in, but the fans are largely fans of the property and not necessarily of the author. So, you know, I have definitely, all the fan base that I have came up with me through uh, through Pathfinder and Starfinder and stuff like that. To what extent, but the number that have come over to my other stuff is significantly smaller. You know, there's lots of people who they know Pathfinder, but they don't know James Sutter, right? And that's that's just the way it works. Like, that's not something I'm bitter about. That's the same thing that's true for everybody who writes Star Wars who's not George Lucas, right? Um, so it can be a really good stepping stone, but don't kid yourself and think that just because you sell 5,000 copies of uh, you know, a Dungeons and Dragons novel that you're going to necessarily sell 5,000 copies of a creator-owned novel. Um, no, and I think it's, it's interesting when you say that because it's slightly different than um, authors who switch genres. It's similar, but right. authors sometimes who switch genres, and especially if they're somewhat diametrically opposed genres, and then yeah. they go down that rabbit hole, and then they're shocked because this fan base that likes you for writing sweet romance does not love you for writing, you know, sadistic horror novels. And you're like shocked that they didn't join you. Few of them yeah. come along, but not a lot of them join that thing. Well, and it's also, you know, it's not even as much the fans at some levels. There's also just a question of like, how well connected are you within exactly the industry you're trying to work in? Right. Um, Because I, you know, I've got some great advantages from being in role playing games from so for so long. Uh, I get offered role playing gigs, you know, all the time. I I get headhunted pretty often since I went freelance, you know, and that's really flattering. But what I'm not getting is that same level of, you know, uh, opportunity with fiction because I haven't built myself up there as well. And so, you know, people people don't necessarily realize how difficult it can be to flip over um, because the same people who commission, you know, 
media A aren't commissioning media B, which is why one of the things I find funny is everybody in a creative industry is always looking across the fence at the next people. Like every novelist I know wants to write comics. Every comic person I know wants to write games. Every game person really like would like to do a screenplay. Um, You know, the grass is always greener. Um, and, and you can cross over, you can absolutely cross over. And I have lots of friends who do it, but it's much harder than if in my case, I was pretty cocky and thinking like, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of at the top of my game. Like, surely this will be easy to transfer all of these skills directly over. And, you know, I, they brought me a lot of benefit that if I were a a straight up new author, I wouldn't have had. Um, I'm certainly have more of a foot in the door and a lot of advantages that a bunch of other people aren't as privileged to have. Um, But that alone is not enough to necessarily get you where you want to be. No, totally. We're going to talk after the show, but (laughs) uh, let's talk a little bit. So YA romance? Yeah. Yeah. I I started getting into. So what? about this i want to hear about this story. honestly so i'd been uh i'd been writing i'd been reading ya romance sort of off and on like the big names and not necessarily ya romance i'd just been reading ya novels you know this the john green uh rainbow rowell like a lot of the sort of really big names uh for several years and then at the start of the pandemic i was getting to work on a big uh dystopian science fiction thing and i just went I can't do this right now. You know, like everything was just so uh, dark and heavy. And a friend of mine who writes young adult stuff was like, you should, you should try some of this YA romance. Um, And I picked one up and I loved it. And so suddenly I was burning through like, um, you know, I love uh, Abigail Johnson and uh, Jeff Zentner and uh, Mary HK Choi. I liked her stuff. Um, So I was just, I was burning through all this young adult romance. uh, And the things I loved about it was, I mean, A, it felt uh, bright and hopeful and uplifting in this dark time, but also young adult romance, uh, you know that by and large, it's not getting you with the world because it's usually, I was reading mostly contemporary stuff. It's not getting you with the plot because you know it's going to have a basic romance plot, which means that what's selling it is all character and dialogue and tone and voice. And I just loved the voice in these stories. Um, and it made me really want to do, you know, one of my own. And I'd, I'd tried to write a fantasy YA uh, romance that a few years ago that hadn't sold. Um, but I said, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write the story that I feel like writing. And so I wrote this story that is, uh, it's a queer love story between two teenage dudes who were in a band in mid- in like middle school and early high school. And then the main character gets fed up and leaves the band and then the band gets huge. And so he's has to watch as sort of his best friends are now off being, you know, world traveling pop stars and he's stuck, you know, trying not to fail social studies. Right. So he's super resentful. Um, And then the book starts when one of the bandmates commits suicide and the remaining one comes home to sort of regather himself. Uh, And they start, they get sort of forced into hanging out by that event and realize not just why they used to be friends, 
but that actually they're quite attracted to each other. But there's still all this resentment because here's this guy who you're kind of into, but also he's the one who stole your chance at fame, right? And so the novel is all about the main character sort of figuring out how to work through that. And also, is this his second chance at stardom? Like, could he rejoin the band or would that just mess everything up? So I think that's brilliant. And I Thanks. absolutely love, no, we're going to talk more after this. <laughs> um, but I think that's great. And I love that you said that because co- the COVID time period, not that we're done with it by any stretch. And I can't wait in about two or three years to go back and listen to these episodes and it be hopefully way more done than it is, right? I'm not in the delusional world that it's going away, but um, this has taken, I think, an interesting toll on a lot of creatives, especially writers, when it comes to, you know, I have, you know, I was talking to Jonathan Mayberry and some other people who literally dropped pandemic-type stories right as the pandemic hit, and they were like, yeah, yeah I really wish there was a takey back <laughs> Right. Can you follow up publishing that a couple of years? But sitting down to write during this time period, I think people don't realize that you have to get yourself into such a, a, a mindset to be able to do it. And when there's like looming clouds on however COVID affected you as a person, right? It's not easy to do that. So I think it's interesting. You get this dystopian thing and you're like, yeah, I'm going to have to press pause. Yeah, I couldn't do it. And then I turned around and as soon as I gave myself permission to write this young adult romance, it was the fastest book I've ever drafted. You know, it was like a couple of months and I was done. Um, And so, and it also really lit a fire for, you know, I want to do more of that. And so I'm now really trying to pursue, okay, well, can I have, can I have both? Can I get an adult science fiction fantasy career and a young adult romance career going and we'll just see but like the answer y- yes and i just want to say that you absolutely can do that yeah that I'm doing it. You know? say what the method there's a way to go about doing that you know what i mean yeah and you can i'm just i'm cheerleader. i just have to go to a couple different conventions in the same weekend <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> of the coin you have to be but no i think you could absolutely do that yeah. I, and i think that's a, a i love the story well that's you know a whole thing um when it when you what made you did you just you talked about a little bit it's okay i've had a couple kombuchas um you talked a little bit about stop laughing at new york um going and deciding that you want to do this full time was was that the catalyst? You're like, okay, I'm done with all this. I've achieved this checkbox. I'm going to go be a full-time writer. Yeah. I mean, it was something that had been building for a while. Um, you know, I had, I loved working at Paizo. There was a lot of really good stuff. And I got to, I got to do a bunch of great jobs and climb and really, uh, you know, by the time I left, like I said, I was running an entire department, you know, the I was in charge of Starfinder. Um, and, and of the novels, which were the two things I cared the most about. And so it was sort of a dream situation, but it also, after 13 years felt like I'd kind of done it, you know? Um, and, you know, especially having just launched Starfinder, you know, cause that's what happened. I, we worked on one, we had exactly one year to get Starfinder from this is an idea we should do 
to the book goes to the printer, which is an incredibly short time for an entire role-playing game of this magnitude. I mean, because we also the requirements for the book for the game were things like, okay, the uh, the core rule book, it needs to have be just as complex, you know, just as complex and like robust as Pathfinder, but it needs to be easier to use. And we should have, you know, setting material in the book, and we should have more material that like shows you how to do the book and also we should have a you know a better layout with all these things um and so we essentially ended up with like a thousand pages of content that we needed to squeeze into a book that couldn't be any bigger than the pathfinder core rule book um and so it was this incredible challenge um and it was great like and the whole team everybody worked really hard on it and i'm super proud of what we produced um i think the book itself is gorgeous um and so uh, you know, we launched it at Gen Con. It was a huge success. You know, I got to feel like a rock star, uh, you know, all weekend, you know, like, and it always feels good to be, if you're at a big, uh, role-playing game company, Gen Con is where you get to be, you know, on the red carpet. It's where you get to be, a you know, a Duke for a, a weekend. Um, and so that's, that's always really fun, but that was really my, uh, my swan song where I got to be there and say, this is, this is the book that is the most, the most mine of anything we've worked on. It's many people's, but it's the one I feel most connected to. Um, and, you know, seeing the lines just go around the block to come get the book, it felt really good. You know, I signed a million autographs and then I came home and uh, two weeks later, I gave notice to my boss because I just said, I think I've hit the top. Um, you know, I, I've done everything I wanted to do. Like I got to run this novel line. I got to, you know, help build up these great games. I got to run a department. There's sort of, it's not that there was nowhere for me to go because being creative director for Starfinder, I could have done that happily for a while, but I also knew that it was taking all my energy, right? I wasn't, it wasn't like I was doing that job and then coming home and writing, you know, my own novels at night. Um, you know, I had done that for my first two books um, and that worked out. But at some point I just thought, you know, I don't know how much of a difference it makes to sort of me and my career to have one more game book. If I've got, you know, 50 or 100 or however many game books that I've written for on my shelf, does one more make a difference? Uh, to my satisfaction versus versus if I have a creator owned novel or a different novel or something else on there, that's going to feel more significant to me. So it just felt like, it just felt like it was time. Like I'd, I'd done what I came to do and I wanted to pull like a Calvin and Hobbes and just kind of drop the mic at a, at the peak of the roller coaster and walk away uh, hopefully leaving people wanting more. I don't know. Um, I've still, and you know, I also haven't walked away entirely. I still write occasional adventures for, uh, you know, for Paizo. I've done stuff for Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I, I still keep my feet in that world, but now I have so much more time to really push full steam ahead on like the projects that I'm most passionate about. I think that's brilliant. I think a lot of people would love to be in the position you're in. You know, because I think, I think being, able, oh my God, I've been saying things 12 times, being able to approach these things and 
step out. Like, I want to talk a little bit about your comic books, too. What kind of comic books did you write? Well, I was, I was oh, doing Pathfinder right. comics. Right? Yeah, I, I got into comics also through Pathfinder. Um, Pathfinder signed a license with uh, Dynamite to make the Pathfinder comic books. And for a while, those were being written by Jim Zub, who comics fans will probably know. He's done a bunch of great work with Marvel and everybody. But he also wrote the Pathfinder comics for uh, maybe a year and a half, something like that. And then uh, when he moved on, because he just had too much, you know, I, th- I think they were giving him like Avengers and stuff like that. And it's like, OK, you know what? You're, you're busy. Um, yeah. We <laughs> needed a writer to take over. And so... Uh, they, I was one of uh, a couple of writers tapped to sort of come in and try, try out uh, doing some comic writing. Um, and I learned you know, everything I knew about it. I learned from Jim Zub. Um, he was very nice to sort of train us up as his replacements. Uh, but I got to do some work on a couple of series there um, that was really fun. And how, is that's- that how is that different? So I've written plays, screen. I've done screenwriting, and I've done. Fiction. I've never done comics. I think what is the difference, do you think? Comics, I think, is very similar to screenwriting. Um, because every panel, you know, you're describing sort of the visual shot and then you give the dialogue. And uh I think that's it format-wise. But otherwise, it's um, you know, at a at a ten thousand foot philosophical level, I think that it's it's a very different experience because you're trusting so much to the artist. Um, I'm a big fan, you know, something that I learned from, uh, especially from Sarah Robinson, who's the, uh, I, she was the art director. I think she's now like see, high, high art mucky muck at uh, Paizo in charge of everything. Um, but, uh, you know, she had always told me, don't give the artist any more information than they need. Like you need to, uh, you know, give them a sentence or two and then get out because you as the writer are not going to come up with as good a composition as the artist, as a visual artist will. And so you need to leave them room to play. Uh, And so I really embrace that with, uh, with comics as well, you know, like give them a few details to sort of inspire them, let them know what action has to happen and then sit back and let them surprise you because they're the experts. Um, and so that's a really fun collaborative way to work when you can, uh, when you can make that go. I bet that was, you know, from writing screenplays, whether they're small episodic things or bigger things, one of the things that is directors are going to do whatever the hell they want to when they get a hold of that screenplay, right? They're going to have their vision and stuff like that when they're writing it. What was it like the first time you got a comic you wrote and you saw all the artwork for it? Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was so much fun, um, which is why I still, you know, I'm, I enjoy any time I get a chance to write for comics um, because it is, you know, uh, you're getting to watch somebody bring a thing to life um, and a comic even more so. I mean, you already get that with working on role-playing games because you get to order art and say, Hey, I need a picture of this character. I need a picture of this scene. Uh, but a comic book is even better because every page is four five, six different pictures that you got to order. And so it's, it's just a, an embarrassment of riches. You just get hundreds of pictures that uh, is this combination of you and the artist. Is there a lot of editing in comic books? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
it's, it's okay. And, and it's just important. And that's actually why I got into it is because I was doing a lot of the editing and license management uh, on the Pathfinder side, because uh, when Dynamite licensed the right to make these comics, um, they knew we were the subject matter experts, right? So they would hire the author and then, you know, all the scripts would come through us for approval. And we were also kind of editing them as well. And so we really had our hands deep in the comic process so that then when they needed a writer, we'd already been working with the scripts for a couple of years at that point. And so it made it much easier to be like, oh, actually, I know I know how this works. That's the thing that I love about editing is you get to see how things come together. Like I was terrified to try and write a novel before I became an editor because it just seemed like, you know, the this giant a hundred thousand words, you know, perfect sitting on a pedestal. And it's really, uh, it was always super intimidating. And then I started editing long form um, serial fiction for Pathfinder, which then became the novels. And I realized like, oh, all of these start as a hot mess. Like even these good, even the really good authors, you know, they start with a mess and then they shape it and they shape it and they shape it. Um, and getting to be there alongside them for that whole process uh, really removed a lot of the mystery. And so once I didn't have the mystery, then I could go, oh, well, I can, I can do that. If, it's just a, if, if a book is just a series of scenes and I can write a scene and I can make a basic plan, then I can probably write a book. Um, and it's true. It's not that hard. Um, you know, China Mieville once told me, uh, you know, don't think about writing a book because if you think about writing a book, it'll terrify you and you'll never write anything. You know, think about writing a chapter, but don't think about writing a chapter because chapter is itself terrifying. You know, like write a scene, write a paragraph, write a line. That's a manageable amount. And if you do a hundred words or 200 words every day, you get to a novel before too long. No, I think totally true. How do you, when you're writing, how do you write? We talk to, you know, obviously we talk to a lot of authors, but some people write scenes very well. Some people write dialogue and they put the scene around the dialogue. Some people just go like, how do you approach this? So you do this young adult novel. We're going to go into that. Sure. Yeah. So I have this idea. And then where does it go from there? Well, it really depends. So actually I find also I write comics versus novels differently. Um, for comics, I almost always write the dialogue first. Um, I'll go through because I need to figure out how to space it out, how to make sure, because in comics, you have very little space. And so you kind of, you write all the words you think you need, and then you go through and hack all the ones that you didn't actually need. Um, and so, but also like everything is, everything is limited. You know, a chapter can be as long as it needs to be, but a comic, you've got, you know, 22 pages or whatever. And, you know, a page can only have X number of panels and you're always trying to make sure that you've got, you know, some sort of cliffhanger on the bottom right-hand corner of that right-hand page. So you make people want to flip, but you want to also want to make sure that you're never spoiling a surprise. Like the answer to that surprise should always be on the left-hand page so that people don't see it coming out of their peripheral vision, you know? And so uh, with comics, uh, the dialogue is frequently what I'm trying to nail down. Um, with, uh, and I do some of that, if I have to write a really dialogue heavy scene, like a conversation where I know I need to hit several points, 
Um, I'll just go through and write the conversation without any sort of blocking, just, you know, person A speaks, person B speaks, just do, 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 do. And then I'll go back and fill everything in uh, because otherwise I'll get distracted and I'll wander off and the conversation won't go where I need it to go. Um, but, uh, but yeah, at a, at a macro level, uh, I'm somebody who really believes in outlining. Um, I hate outlining. It's my least favorite part of the entire process, but without it, I feel uh, terrified and adrift because I'm a very lazy author. You know, I work, I work very hard, but I don't want to write a book any more times than I have to. And so I try to, as close as I can, get everything set up so that I can pretty much you know, get it right or as close to right as possible the first time. And I think that comes from working in journalism and working in magazines where, you know, oftentimes you're writing something and the ship date is, you know, your deadline is an hour from now. You know, a, a lot of my best work has come out of situations where somebody walked up to my desk and went, oh shit, we need a thousand words about orcs, uh, you know, and it needs to go to art now. Um, and so you just sit there and go, oh, well, I'll tap, 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 Muppet hands. Um, and I, uh, I really like working that way. I, I like the write it, ship it. Um, but with something like a novel, I know that uh, if I just try to wing the whole thing, I'm going to end up in a dead end and be so disillusioned that I, I let it drop. I, I think it's interesting. I, I happen to be very similar mindset. I, I do not like going through reading my books a million times, um, mainly because then I get a new idea for the story and then I'll start changing the story and then I'm like, what am I doing? Mm. But I'm a cancer. I cannot, if I outline, like it's, yeah, I never, I can't outline, ever. But I think it's fascinating that you say that and then the dialogue points, because I know a lot of times people talk about the conversations and then linking the scenes that lead to the conversations. And what you said about young adults makes a lot of sense because it is the characters. Like people fall in love with the characters of, of young adults because a lot of the stories are fairly similar. Right. Kind of like romance tropes. They're very similar, but you fall in love with the characters. You know what I mean? Everybody, yeah. Jacob, Team Edward. I mean, that's like an epic example of people falling in love with well, young, you know, young adult characters. Well, I, I would say I don't think I realized until, I mean, I know I didn't realize, like I have never thought of myself as a funny writer. I never thought of myself as somebody who's particularly good at dialogue. Um, and then I think when I started writing comics, I got, I started to think, okay, well, I'm, I'm reasonably good at the, you know, the heroic zingers, you know, um, and the little like, cause you gotta be really, snappy in comic writing you know especially for something like pathfinder which was uh or is you know a very fun boisterous bombastic sort of comic like you want to get that poppy funny kind of repartee um especially because that's what a lot of people love about gaming and that's what you're trying to capture like that feeling of the table talk um and then when i went into writing uh this young adult uh I, you know, did the best that I could and then found out afterwards, giving it to several of my young adult writer friends where they were saying like, no, no, this, this banter, this dialogue, like that's where you shine is it's really funny. Um, and it was something that I had never sort of thought about myself or my writing. And I'm now uh, in the midst of trying to figure out like, okay, how do I embrace that? What's, 
what's the difference? And I think it's, for me, it's been trying to incorporate more of how I speak into how I write. Because I think, uh, you know, um, when I'm socializing, like I like to think that I'm a reasonably entertaining, you know, easy, easy to talk to person. Um, but, you know, in my high fantasy novels, like my protagonist was a very dour, you know, uh, sort of noir detective in a fantasy setting. Um, yeah, you know, so it was like very philosophical, but it wasn't snarky and fun. And uh, so the young adult has really let me sort of explore that and go, oh, maybe actually this might actually be the thing that I'm good at that I haven't used for the last, you know, 15 years of my career. Um, but we'll, we'll find out, right? Uh, you know, it hasn't sold yet. So the proof is always in the contract. Yeah. yeah. We're talking after this. Okay. We actually have to wrap up this episode. So what advice would you give authors out there? Oh man. Um, I mean, the number one thing is just, just do it and own it and don't, don't freak yourself out. Just sit down and write something like it doesn't matter if it's, if it's great or not, because if you start writing, eventually there will be something in that mess that is good. And then you can edit and cut away all the other stuff. Like when I, I will, I will say this, which is when I first got out of college and was briefly unemployed uh, before I got a job, I set myself a goal of, I'm going to sit down every day and write a story. I don't know what it's going to be. I'm just going to figure out something. I'm just going to start writing. And the, it was basically free write exercises. And I think, you know, I wrote like seven or eight stories that way. And like half of them sold eventually in some form or another. And, you know, could I have been doing that more? Probably. But like the, my problem is always it's always the fear of the blank page. Um, and I think that's what stops most people. So if you're like me and you're terrified by the idea of writing, uh, just, you gotta just do it. Just push through it. Even a little bit every day will add up. That is perfect. Okay, how do people find you? Yeah, folks can find me on Twitter at James L. Sutter or on my website at jameslsutter.com. Um, always happy to chat with people. I'm Twitter is usually where I'm at uh, more than I should be. So uh, feel free to hit me up there. Okay, awesome. You have been wonderful. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Welcome. I am your host, Eric Lamp, as well as Ben. Mark Munson from Abbey, Florida. And we will see you next time. Goodbye.